welcome to the Stalk and I podcast for single women considering solo motherhood by donor conception. I'm your host, Mel Johnson, the solo motherhood coach and solo mum to a three-year-old daughter. For series four of the podcast, I talk to a variety of professionals about specific topics relevant to solo parenthood where they have an expertise. In today's episode, I speak to Emma, who is one half of Your IVF Abroad. Getting fertility treatment abroad as a single woman is something I used to talk about a lot, but since the pandemic, it's dropped off the radar because most people just felt like they didn't want to go abroad and add another variable to what's already a tricky journey. Now, as things seem to be opening up, I thought it was a great time to have that conversation with Emma to find out what are the options if you want to go abroad and why do people do it? So I hope you find the conversation useful and interesting. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. I've been really looking forward to coming on. I love a good podcast chat. <laughs> me too. <laughs> you are coming on to talk all about having IVF abroad. But before we get into that, it would be great if you gave yourself a bit of an introduction. Yeah, of course. Thank you. So my name is Emma Haslam and I'm one half of Your IVF Abroad, which I founded with my husband, Adam, after our own sort of journey with infertility, which I'll talk to you about in a moment. We set up recognizing what was missing, what we really wanted when we were going through planning and having treatment. And after we went through our kind of journey, we decided we wanted to do more to help people with making treatment more accessible, more affordable, and also more supported. So we set up in December 2019 and we haven't looked back. It's been absolutely fantastic and we're growing and we had clients despite the pandemic. We had clients and sort of as travels begin to open up, we've really sort of started to, to fly and grow, which is fantastic. And we help with everything from helping people with learning more about donor conception and what you need to be aware of and what's different in different countries from a kind of impartial, non-judgmental way so that people can make informed decisions. Um, I also have a course called the Toolkit course where people can go and learn to do what we do for people, but do it themselves. And then we help people with finding clinics, sorting out all the practical bits, supporting them emotionally, and then through to having their treatment. So in terms of kind of my journey, um, we began trying after our wedding, casually trying, which turned into trying, trying and all the old wives tales. And then about a year into trying hard, we decided to go to the doctors and, and get some get some tests. And I think we naively presumed, like lots of people do if we've got a partner anyway, that we just get pregnant. Um, and it just wasn't happening. So I went to the doctors and found out that we had issues on, on, on both sides. Um, and I was sent away to lose six stone of weight to get my BMI down. To qualify for the, um, for the treatment, I put it all back on again, I must add. But um, I, uh, I went away and I did it. I don't know how I did it, but I did it sensibly and healthily through diet and exercise over two years. Okay. Only to return and be told that the CCG rules had changed and that the limit had gone down to 30 and could I just in inverted commas go and lose another two and a half stone at which point I was like no I can't I'm fit and healthy I'm a size 14 I mean I'm tall as well and bearing in mind my diagnosis was around perimenopause so I just spent two years 
of my fertility, losing weight for something that wasn't going to, to happen on the NHS. So I left very grumpy, very upset, not really knowing what to do, where to, where to turn. I had a few consultations with UK clinics. In, my, in our experience, I didn't find them to be particularly transparent around costings. I didn't feel like I particularly gelled with any of them. And we had like a three to 5% chance of it working using my eggs and Adam's sperm. So we just thought, you know what, we, we might be able to save if we move back in with my parents, which is what we did. We don't buy a house yet. We might be able to save up enough to justify one round in the UK. But actually, with a three to five percent chance, it wasn't going to take one round, was it? <laughs> you know, we weren't going to be that unicorn. And I, I think we're both quite sensible. And I just couldn't justify the cost. Like, I just couldn't do it knowing we were going to need multiple cycles. So at that point, began to kind of research IVF abroad but had no idea what we were doing and just found it so overwhelming I mean you will know you type it into to Google and you get so much comes up at you and you're like oh my god where do I even start it's so overwhelming but you know fudged our way through had some consultations landed on a clinic in the Czech Republic and just found the whole kind of approach to us I, I felt like a person I didn't feel like somebody who was just who was being discussed on weight and, and measured on weight all the time. Um, I found them to be very honest, but kind. And they were the first people, all three clinics, we had three consultations, all three of them said to us, and none of the UK clinics did, that we should consider donor egg and donor sperm. Now, while that was obviously a massive thing to take in, Adam and I had already begun to look at other kind of paths to parenthood, like adoption, and I think the, because they were so honest and all of a sudden our chances went from like a three to five percent chance up to 60 to 70 percent chance. All of a sudden that with the fact that we could then afford more cycles abroad just made me think, well, this is going to happen. There's no reason why this isn't going to happen, because mechanically, if you like, everything was OK with me. And I know it doesn't always work like that, but I just felt hope for the first time. And I felt like I had trust with the clinic, which is something that's really important. Um, I'm sure, as I'm sure it is to most people. And there was a guarantee that if you didn't get pregnant after two cycles, they would do the third one for free, but I didn't have to sign up to any multi-packages. Um, so there was a big pull to kind of go abroad, which we did. And it did take three cycles. Um, so it's a good job I didn't go in the UK, otherwise I wouldn't have my little boy now. And on the third cycle, I've just given it away. I um, became pregnant um, actually with twins, but sadly I lost one of them at 10 weeks. Um, but I do now have my son, Albie, who has just gone three. Amazing. Gosh, what a, a journey <laughs> that you've been on. So, so many things to ask you. And um, slightly off topic, but I think if you don't mind me asking, and um, because I have so many coaching clients who are in this position who get told by the clinic that they have to go and lose quite a lot of weight. Mm. And it can be so disheartening because that's not something you can really do quickly um or it's harder to, to do quickly if you don't mind sharing it would be great to just hear a little bit about how you handled that and what you did and you know how you managed to make that happen yeah well I've been on and off diets all my life so I've done them all I've tried them all but I knew I didn't want to go down the route of you know really restricting myself because I knew that wasn't going to be healthy 
from a point of view of conception, even though I knew that would be the quickest thing to do a, you know, slim fast or to do something with, you know, meal replacements. Um, I'm not judging anybody, by the way, if that's what you've decided to do. But for me, that didn't feel like the right thing. And I wasn't sure how long I could kind of keep that up for because I like my food. Um, so I thought to myself, right, if I'm going to have to lose that amount of weight and keep it off for a bit, I need to do something that I can, you know, see myself sticking with, at least for the time I need to do it. So I use um, an app called My Fitness Pal. You might have heard of it. Yeah. Which is free. And essentially, it's got a massive database in there and you can track what you're eating in there. Um, you can scan barcodes of things from shops. And once you put information there, it recognizes it for the next time. So it makes it, it, it easier. And what it does is it tells you based on your weight and your height and what you want to lose, how many calories to consume a day. And then I bought myself a Fitbit and I began to move more and set my steps at 10,000 steps a day. And that linked in with the, with the kind of calories that I could eat. So the more I moved, the more I could eat and still lose the weight. And it, it helped me, I think, for two reasons. One, because it got me moving. And two, because I never had to think to myself, I can't have that because I could have anything, but obviously less of it. So in terms of a cracking on with it and not taking all of the joy out of my life, because let's face it, when you're going through infertility, sometimes like, if that's your vice, if that's your comfort, then if you take that away as well, sometimes it feels like what's left. So I could still have some chocolate. I could still have that cake, but instead of perhaps having it, I don't know, twice a week, it might be once a week, it might be half the size, that kind of thing. So making really sensible choices and moving more. And then as I began to lose some weight and get a bit fitter, I then started to go to some exercise classes. I really recommend, I hate exercise. I, I love walking but I'm not somebody who enjoys kind of exercise per se, but I really enjoy doing something called rebounder. It's like on a little mini trampoline. Oh yeah. Um, it's really good for people who are carrying weight because it's, it's um, not impactful on your joints. And I used to find that kind of bouncing away was really good for like my mental health and you burn so many calories and it's, it's actually, dare I say it, quite good fun. And that's <laughs> what it's about, isn't it? It's about finding something that you enjoy. <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, so I started doing that two or three times a week and, you know, if you work it out the loss over a couple of years, it's, it is quite a steady loss, but, but then I didn't beat myself up. So, you know, if I was going on holiday, I allowed myself some treats. It was Christmas. I allowed myself some treats, but it was about not thinking, right, well, I've had a, try not to think of food as bad and good and not thinking, right, well, I've blown it in one meal. Therefore let's blow the week. Let's blow the month. Let's blow the year. Trying to think, okay, we move on. Um, and tracking everything that I ate, even if it meant I went over, just so I was aware. Because sometimes you think you're not eating much, but actually when you track it, you, you are. So being honest with myself and being accountable, but also being kind to myself because I was going through a really, really hard time. And losing any weight, and particularly a significant amount of weight, is hard. As I say, I sit here with that six stone back on again. So it's a it's a complicated thing is food for lots of people. Um I think the fact that I wanted it so much obviously drove me to it. Now, I'm not saying that other people don't want it as well if they don't manage to do it because it's, it's hard and it's complicated and it's often people's comfort, isn't it? But so helpful for people to hear that you did do it because I know that a lot of women are presented with this when they go to the fertility mm. clinic and think, gosh, just another barrier, you yeah. know, another hurdle that I need to get over on, on this already complex journey. And when you went abroad, did they have the same criteria in the clinics abroad in terms of your weight? No, so um, 
generally speaking abroad they'll have different limits and, and different countries have different limits some countries will say they have no limit but you have to kind of bear in mind that if we're talking about safe countries here that a doctor there has to be a limit somewhere and that's because anesthetic is involved potentially with some people if they're having own egg treatment and they have to be able to safely put you under without risk of cardiac arrest and the doctor has to take into consideration your general health and things so when they say no limit it doesn't really mean no limit but what it means is they're going to look at you holistically and as a as a package as we want people to do and that they're BMI sensitive etc you'll find other countries tend to stick around similar limits so you'll find Spain tend to be comfortable around the 35 mark Czech Republic up to about 40 and then you'll find places like Greece that are the ones that are more sympathetic to BMI. So what I would say is if you're thinking about, I suppose, going abroad, it might be that you just can't get that last couple of points down on the BMI scale to get to under 30 or get to under 35, whatever the, the criteria is for your area privately or on the NHS. It might be that the answer is to go abroad because actually you can still have that treatment without killing yourself. And if you're somebody who is conscious of age or you've got perimenopause, then you do need to think about time versus is it worth losing the weight versus the decline in fertility? So you have to kind of weigh it all up, don't you? You do. Yeah, brilliant. Well, thank you for sharing. I think that would be really helpful for people. So thinking about going abroad. So the first thing I suppose for my audience of single women planning a solo motherhood is are there any, I mean, I know there are, but you probably know better than me. There are countries still who don't treat single women they'll only treat you if you're in a couple you know is that changing do you think most of the countries that you work with do accept single women yeah most do some don't so like Czech Republic I don't I don't think that will probably ever change you know that if you look at their laws around all sorts of things same-sex couples etc you know some of the Eastern European countries are quite strict on this kind of thing but there are loads you know Spain Greece, I mean, in Greece, you do have to have a notary signed by a solicitor, so you'd have to pay for that. The clinic would organise it, and it's about 70 to 100 euros. Denmark, Portugal, there are lots of choices of great countries to go for fertility treatment who, you know, are happy to treat solo women, single women. Perfect. Well, I suppose, first of all, why would I consider treatment abroad? So funnily enough, I actually did have treatment abroad because yeah. I was in Budapest and travelled the other way to most people. So I travelled back to the UK to have treatment. So have some insight into what it's like practically, if you like, um, travelling back and forth. But what are the reasons, the key reasons that you think people usually choose to explore um, having treatment abroad? Yeah, I think key reasons are number one is usually cost for people you know you can be looking at all in saving 50 percent versus the uk roughly on on everything included with your flights your accommodation everything and that scale goes down depending on depending on where you go in but you can get it at about 50 percent cheaper also success rates are considerably higher for donor conception in europe that's my kind of area is europe so i'll i'll, I'll talk about europe and considerably being sometimes double what it is in the uk the other reason that people look to go abroad, I think, is that some people want anonymous treatment. And whereas if you're, say, you're based in the UK, you only have the option of known donation. And some people don't, don't want that. And, and other reasons might be that, you know, the customer service and things is generally much better. The support is better. Um, and you know, also you get the chance to maybe go away and have a break. You're not 
at the fertility clinic the whole time mm-hmm. and you know you get the chance to explore somewhere else maybe have a bit of a holiday and no it's not the same as pre fertility treatment days but you know for some that's a nice kind of add-on you, you don't necessarily have to tell anybody you just say I'm going to Spain for a week or whatever so I think they're some of the the main reasons I would imagine and from my clients that are single it feels maybe harder because I think if you don't know, like, obviously I know all about IVF abroad because I've done it and I've helped lots of people do it. So for me, it's all in my brain. But when I was doing this myself, it was like, oh, trying to work everything out. It's, sometimes it felt too hard, but I did have Adam with me. Um, you know, when you may be doing it on your own, I would imagine it could feel like it's too difficult, um, which is why I'd suggest if you were going to, you know, look to go abroad and you were feeling stuck, that you consider using either somebody like us or somebody else to kind of help you through that process and that you consider picking a clinic that's really nurturing, that really looks after its clients because you're going to need that as opposed to a clinic that's more muck and bullets, just, you know, working through it all. You might need that extra sort of support, I would imagine. Yeah. And funnily enough, I was working with a clinic in Spain, um, Ferti International, and they got me to fly out so that I could experience like how it was going from the UK to Spain. I went there and back in one day, what was possible to do in one day, meeting the team, etc. So because I wanted, I mean, it's not quite the same because I wasn't actually having treatment, yeah. but the, the practical side of getting there and, and, and how to do it. And I documented that it's um, on the highlights in my Instagram account. But yeah, the, the whole thing is overwhelming. So adding in having to go to another country just adds an, another element to it. But like you say, for cost reasons, mainly I hear people talking about that choice. It might be, you know, something that you want to work through because ultimately you have a better chance of success if you can have yeah. more money. Um, the better chance of success, you know, maybe more money in the budget if you need more than one round because let's face it, a lot of people, you know, the average is three rounds, less so perhaps a donor, but, you know, two to three rounds. But also, you know, you've got the options. You can think about whether you want known donation or anonymous. And I'm not saying there's right or wrong, but you've got, you can you can kind of look at both and, and decide which is right for you because those are the sorts of things that you need to get right for yourself because you've got to think about the long-term consequences and whether consequences is the right word, the long-term impact of whatever decision you make. Yeah. So I'd be really interested to just explore that a, a little bit more because I know it's a subject that some people have shared with me that they sort of went into it not really understanding the implications and I think for me it's just super important that people understand the implications before they make a choice so um, just in terms of so the law in the UK is that you must use I think it's called a release ID donor so that when your child becomes 18 they get the contact details of the donor. So in other countries, the legislation is different. So there's some countries where it's an anonymous donor, and that means that you'll never get access from the clinic, at least, to the information. Is that right? Yes, that's right. I mean, through perhaps through DNA, you might, as yeah. things progress. I would imagine in years to come that it won't be impossible at all. But yes, in terms of kind of how it is and the technicalities, that is, that is the difference. Each country will have its own, you know, way of doing things so you need to check that out and going back to your question about where do you kind of start I always tell them start with destination first where would you like to have 
treatment where can you have treatment and then what are the laws and rules around that type of treatment in that country and that will very help you help you very quickly cross off some places because some of the overwhelm can be okay i'm moving from one clinic in the uk or a couple of clinics in the uk and now i'm looking at whole continent oh my god i'm overwhelmed and it just helps you kind of cut down um on that and then the other thing like if people come to me and they are unsure or upset or worried i send them away and suggest they go for donor counseling first before they make a decision i give them information around what each what each of the means things to consider i talk them through the different options in different countries so that they can make informed and empowered decisions for themselves because i think it's really important whichever way you choose to go that you are comfortable with your decision that you understand what it is you're signing up for when adam and i had our treatment we didn't even know anything about known donation versus anonymous we didn't know anything and we just went for it now in hindsight i'm still happy with our decision adam's still happy with his decision i'm probably a little bit more i'd have been open i think to either adam feels very strongly he would still have wanted an anonymous donor but just just by the fact that i went through it and didn't understand what i was doing fills me with horror now and i feel it's really important that people understand um, and then you can say to yourself whichever way you go that you made the best decision with the information that you had at the time and I think that's all we can all we can do and like you know who knows how Albie will feel about the fact that we used an anonymous donor I don't know that I don't know whether he, he'll feel okay not okay whether it would be any different if we'd use a known donor and all I can promise is to kind of love him guide him support him with whatever he does or doesn't want to do and you know say that I've done a lot to learn more about it and I was so desperate for a child that I didn't spend that time learning about it because I didn't know I didn't know what I didn't know but now I do know and so I like people to at least make informed decisions because I don't think there is a right or a wrong you know it's about what's right for you and sometimes you know what people have got to consider is that with known donation it is more expensive it is not as readily available and therefore, it just cuts some people out straight away. It probably would have cut us out too if we hadn't known about known donations. So, you know, sometimes it's not just as simple for people as making a decision on do we go unknown or anonymous. Sometimes there's other factors too that might preclude people from treatment if they decide to go down the known donation route. And mm. um, you were saying that the success rates for donor conception are higher abroad. Why is that? It's because they do more donor cycles than we do. So in terms of you think about it in a practice kind of way, they've done far more than we have. That's because the majority of the larger places to go for fertility treatment are anonymous. So because of that, more people are willing to come forward and donate. Therefore, there are more, you know, more people, more donors available out there, more people can have donor treatment. So they're just more advanced, I think. And also in terms of things like testing, um, not sorry, I don't mean in terms of the donors, but I mean in terms of fertility testing and things that just offer a lot more innovative forward thinking treatment and things. So I think that is probably why, as a combination, they've got higher results. My understanding is limited. I, my understanding is that if you need an egg donor, there can be a bit of a wait list in the UK. Is, is that right? Yeah, there can be. Not everywhere, um, but there can be. If you are not um caucasian of course you know then you might find it more difficult if you're looking for somebody with black skin or asian skin you then you might be um 
you know, you might be waiting longer. So that's another thing that sometimes stops people because typically abroad, particularly in the anonymous countries, there is no wait time. There's a, there's a time of process that it takes to go through it, but that might only be, you know, eight to 12 weeks, but, you know, but you can crack on with everything straight away. Whereas in the UK, you might be waiting. And again, some people are just, they don't want to, they don't want to wait. So you said you tell people to, first of all, look at the destination. Yeah. And then what else are people looking at when they're making this decision? What's your advice? So you've worked out where you can go for treatment and where you'd like to go for treatment. And you might have one or two countries, like trying to get it down to one or two. Otherwise, you're just going to be there all day trying to pick somewhere. Yeah. And it is a case of starting with Google, starting with a Google search and, and looking at clinics. I always recommend that you go to a country within the EU if you're looking at Europe. Because this way, automatically, if you've checked that that clinic is registered and regulated, and you can ask the clinic, or there's ways to do this where you can find out if they're registered and regulated. By the fact that they're an EU country means that their rules and regulations and laws have to be sort of comparable with ours around fertility treatment. So in terms of your safety and that kind of thing, it's, it's, it's more of a given I'm not saying don't do your checks. It's more of a given than if you decide to go to, say, somewhere like the Ukraine, Turkey, so they're within Europe, but not within the EU, because there is no way of doing your due diligence and doing the checks that I recommend people do. So like for our clients, we do them for them. But if you're doing it yourself, you know, or or like for people on our course, we tell them exactly all the different things that they need to do. Whereas if I was to work with a clinic in the Ukraine, I couldn't confidently say this is a safe clinic. These are actual real bona fide success rates because they've been verified independently by X organization. Mm -hmm. So starting with an EU country is a much more sensible choice. I'm not saying that all clinics in North Cyprus, Ukraine, Turkey are bad. What I'm saying is you've got no way of checking. And I read something recently about clinics in North Cyprus and there's about 14 of them and I think five of them failed their kind of their government's version, their Ministry of Health version of a check, which isn't the same sort of standard as kind of the UK and other areas in the EU. And so they're operating still, not being at standard, which fills me with horror and dread. So you have to be careful. So people say to me, so it's everywhere abroad good. No, of course it's not. It's absolutely not. And that's what can put some people off because it just feels too too much so you need to be you know thinking about eu countries you know looking into whether they're registered and regulated do they have their success rates independently verified if not they could just be making them up you know take success rates with a pinch of salt because although they're one piece of a jigsaw and a good indication of of obviously clinic success which is something we want to know you know, what's more important is our personalised projection of success based on our circumstances. And also, you've got to bear in mind that clinics present those results in different ways. So you've got to be comparing one against another that's the same, but also their samples will be different because they're in different clinics, they're different people using different lab techniques, etc. So don't get too hung up on that. I think it's about, you know, picking, picking your destination, picking your somewhere in the EU, checking that they're registered and regulated then it's about hopping on some consultations and not being afraid to ask um, difficult questions not worrying about that because 
you are a customer you know if you've had experience sometimes of, of treatment in the UK and it hasn't been a good experience then sometimes people are worried about asking questions and I want to encourage people that any good clinic anywhere UK abroad will be happy to answer your questions and have two or three consultations so that you are you have something to benchmark against like don't go crazy and have more than that because you'll, you'll start to feel overwhelmed and struggle to decide but I think you need two or three to just kind of you know work it out and I say to people write a list write a list of what you want in a clinic like your dream clinics what are the absolute must that you must have and then what are the nice to haves and then come back to your list and have a look and think right does this meet this you know if you're still struggling if you don't get the gut feeling which I think you probably will do but if you don't then you know have a look at those clinics versus that list and then go from there and um, one of the bits of advice I'd give to my listeners as well is to ask others who've had treatment abroad. So there's nothing better than personal recommendations, is there? And um, on my Facebook group, the Stalk and I Mum Tribe, there's a thread for people who've had treatment abroad. And I think that just gives you um, a bit of an insight as well. Um, everyone's in different circumstances everyone's you know um got different you know in, in a different situation but it's I personally think it's nice to hear oh I went to that clinic and I found them really good particularly when you're talking about solo motherhood because you know not every clinic is sympathetic towards different families setups um and it's nice to go to a clinic that really is familiar with um you know with with treating single women so I think that can be really powerful as well I think that's that's really important actually um I'm glad you mentioned it and I think you know it's a bit like TripAdvisor isn't it you've got to look at it realize everybody's different realize what pleases one person might not please you and vice versa but just to get a feel you know have people been to this clinic have they had successful treatment if they didn't have successful treatment would they still go back how are they treated it's all that kind of stuff isn't it just to give you that reassurance but not kind of getting hung up too much on one person's word but that just might help you with a starting point of who to speak to might it so true and um how much time do you actually have to spend abroad when you're having treatment abroad so how does it typically work how how many times do you have to go over and for how long so if we were talking about doing own egg and donor sperm then um typically people begin their treatment in their home countries to cut down the amount of time needed abroad so you'd start your protocol which as you know is like your timetable for what you need to do and when like when you start your drugs when your scans are needed when is egg collection so most people start the drugs say in the uk have that first scan around day nine at home and then fly out for that kind of final scan before egg collection um and then be there for transfer so generally speaking for for donor egg treatment about seven or eight days donor sperm treatment sorry donor sperm treatment about seven or eight days yeah and who does it at home do they have like satellite clinics that they partner with some do have satellite clinics and people ask me this a lot but actually a lot of the satellite clinics are based in london so if you're anywhere outside of london that's not particularly helpful anyway but you don't need them you don't need them because you've got places where you can go and get an ultrasound anyway so sometimes the clinic will partner with people um, but you don't often need a referral. There are ultrasound clinics out there, places like Ultrasound Direct, where you can just go and book in for a fertility scan. Um, they will email you their, um, their report and their images and you send it across to the clinic. 
Um, slight caveat with that one, they also do lots of pregnancy scanning. So in terms of triggering, it can be quite triggering when you're going for your fertility scans and there's lots of pregnant people there, but they're great. They're all over the country. Um, so you don't necessarily need a satellite clinic like you think you do. And often you have to pay extra for that satellite clinic anyway. So it's not always the best way to, to do it. But yes, yeah, some will have that. If that's what you want. So you have sort of like initial consultations and stuff um, over Zoom or whatever. Then you yeah. can have some of the tests and the scans in your home country. And then really you're flying out for the actual um, treatment if you're using your own egg. So that would be the egg collection and yeah. then the transfer. And then the transfer. I mean, some people choose to go out there for longer. By doing that, everything's included, all of your scans, bloods, everything. Um, but most people want to go for as little time as um, as possible. You know, and some of the bloods you can get done on the NHS. Um, other bloods you can get done through, the, you know, places where you can do the pinprick testing at home and send it off. So it's all absolutely possible without a satellite clinic. And what if you're using donor eggs and donor sperm? So if you're using donor egg and donor sperm, so donor embryo, then in theory, you're just needed for the transfer. So, you know, a couple of nights, so you might fly in the night before, have your transfer, and then you may decide to fly out the night after just so you can have a bit of a chill. You won't necessarily know what time your um, transfer is going to be. You don't want the pressure of rushing to an airport and getting back home. But I mean, in theory, you could just fly in the day before and fly out the night of your transfer after your transfer if you wanted to. Um yeah it is possible it's just more a preference than if you'd just like to take a day or so afterwards yeah definitely yeah so you talk about the costs and that it can be you know up to 50 percent cheaper yeah. is that includes the flight and the hotel and that, that even with everything and staying for like seven nights or however long and yeah. it can still be up to yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, forgetting the flights, accommodation and all of that, um, you know, you can you can have own egg donor sperm treatment from about four and a half thousand euros plus your flights, plus your accommodation medication. You know, that's going to be the same wherever you are. But the difference, I suppose, with having treatment abroad is you perhaps more free to get your medication from wherever. Often in clinics in the UK, you have to buy their their medication or you have to pay for them to write you a private prescription to go elsewhere and clinics in the UK make a lot of money on um, medication so that's something else you can save money on while you go away. How would that work would the clinic tell you what medication you needed and then you could get that while yeah. in the UK? Yeah so some clinics will send you the medication right. so it gets delivered to your door you've got other options if not you can use online pharmacies to fulfill the prescriptions and get it delivered to your door. You could use ASTA, but they don't make any money on fertility treatment drugs. But that's if you've got the benefit of time. Sometimes ASTA can be time consuming. You know, if a drug has got a different name in the UK versus abroad, they won't just automatically know that like a fertility pharmacy would. Often I hear, and I've had this experience myself, that drugs arrive, you've got injections, but there are no needles. And then, you know, saying, well, can I have the orange and green ones? Doesn't suffice. <laughs> <laughs> so it really, that can really depend on how, how experienced your local ASDA is on dealing with overseas fertility patients. Some people have brilliant experiences. Mine were absolutely lovely, but I must have gone there six times and it was so much ha hassle and faff for the amount of money that I saved. I wouldn't do that again now. And it's, it's going to a couple of online pharmacies and it's um, comparing prices. They will also accept electronic prescriptions. 
So in terms of to get your medication fulfilled, they'll accept it electronically and then you get the clinic to send them the hard copy after. If you go into an ASDA, you need the physical hard copy. And since Brexit, posts from Europe's taking a lot longer to get here. So sometimes we don't have the time to factor these things in. So you've got to kind of weigh it all up. But it's absolutely doable to get a prescription from abroad fulfilled, certainly in the, in the UK. And just talking about Brexit, has that impacted getting treatment abroad at all in your experience? I think it has slightly in some places, yeah. I think when a lot of clinics in the UK closed, um, a lot of the clinics abroad didn't, and so they got a lot busier. Some people didn't want to travel or couldn't travel, say they were going to Spain. Spain closed its doors at one point, which has then meant a bit of a knock-on effect now. And certainly, you know, it's a question I'd be asking in consultations because there are some clinics that have flown through the pandemic and done brilliantly. There are others that have struggled and do have some slight weights now, particularly for donor treatment. Another thing to consider is like in Greece, they close for a month in August because of the heat. I think that plus the pandemic, you know, has meant that some people are waiting longer to even get that initial consultation. So I think these are all important questions to ask. Don't just assume that there's no waiting list abroad. Like when I'm looking at clinics for our clients, obviously I'm making sure they haven't got the waiting list if they're looking to go, you know, ASAP. And finding out if they've got big donor banks, how readily available the donor sperm is or donor egg, if you have a donor egg as well. And is donor sperm managed differently just depending on the country and the clinic? And, you know, a, a lot of four single women choosing the donor sperm is, you know, is, is one of the big decisions. Do the fertility clinics you work with use the same sperm banks or have they got their own sperm banks or is it a variety you need to ask the clinic what they yeah. do? Yeah, it's a, it's a variety you need to ask the clinic and you need to also be asking the clinic, you know, what's the, the donor testing process and welfare process? You know, what you don't want is, and this doesn't tend to go on, on in EU countries, but again, you know, in most of the EU countries, donors are just paid expenses. They're not, it's not a way of them making money to make a living. So most people do it because they want to donate. Whereas perhaps in other countries, there's questions around the ethics of, are people doing this to live on? Because there's, you know, object poverty. And what you don't want is to be going somewhere where, that donor can just keep donating you know there needs to be a cap on this and it's those are the types of questions and what sort of testing are they doing you know how safe is it you know are they, are they making sure that it's not just some random person that hasn't been fully checked and then what are those checks so you can kind of look and then yeah the whole sperm bank versus in-house just depends a lot of them use a sperm bank um but they're you know they do vary but again same with eggs some have their own in-house and some use a bank with COVID, I guess you need to just check the flight restrictions and the quarantining, because I guess if you have to quarantine in a certain country, then that's going to significantly increase the cost of going there. Yeah, yeah um, definitely. Is definitely. there anything else that you need to consider? Yeah, so you need to be looking at, and this is probably going to help you in factoring and making a decision on a country, is you, you know, look at the government websites of the countries that you go in and understand the implications of going there. You know, is there any quarantine? What are the rules when you get there? Are any tests needed to, to gain entry? And then also looking, looking at it in reverse, if you live in the UK, coming back, do you need to go to any quarantine hotels, etc.? I mean, I don't think that's happening at the moment, but, you know, it's being aware of all that kind of stuff really important. You might want to look at current COVID rates in that country just to see where they are. Um, I mean, from the 4th of October, the whole red, amber, greens go in and it's becoming 
green and red, which makes it a lot easier yeah. for people. But just having a bit of an awareness around that, I think, is important because you've also got to factor in the costs of testing if you need to have tests done. Um, it has got much cheaper, a lot cheaper. And also, if you're double vaccinated, sometimes you can just do an antigen lateral flow test, which are free and readily available anyway. Um, so it's something that you need to understand and, and check. And you check with your airline to see if they've got any particular requirements. You know, they may still wish for you to wear a mask. It might be the same at the clinic. So just that you're that you're prepared. But I mean, we had people going out for treatment right at the height of the pandemic. It wasn't easy. Um, you know, they had letters to give them permission medically to travel, um, but it was absolutely doable. And the only place where it cl things closed down for us was, was Spain. And for the particular couple that were going to Spain, they decided that actually they were going to take a bit more time out, focus on health and losing a bit more weight. And they were happy to wait. So it didn't impact on them too much everybody else we managed to kind of you know crack it but it is a lot better now a lot easier now and a lot cheaper now than it than it was brilliant yeah. and is there any other advice that you would give to people that we've not already talked about I think sometimes trust your gut as well like with a clinic if you've done all of the right checks and things and you've heard people's recommendations and you've you know you've asked the right questions you've had some consultation you get a strong feeling about a clinic then you know yourself better than anybody else. So, you know, in the end, if you've done all of those things and you can't really go wrong, you know, if you've, you've worked out if you want um, anonymous or known, you've worked out what country you want to go to, you've done all your checks in the clinic, you really like the docs, you really like what they're going to say, you, then why would you not just go ahead, you know? And it might feel overwhelming, but it's absolutely doable and it's because you're getting all this information all at once you know in reality you're doing it in in chunks you know there's, a, there's time you get a bit more time I think to, to sort things out when you're going down um the donor route because you can be a bit more planned with your treatment and things which is helpful write everything down get yourself a notepad that's get yourself a physical file that's for all your tests and everything and so you've got everything together You've got your list of what you need to do, you know, file all your emails from the clinic. Just keep yourself organized is my biggest tip. And, you know, if you think this is for me, but I don't see how I can do this on my own, then you don't have to, you know, come join one of my courses where I give you everything that you need to know in six weeks and you can do it yourself, but you've got my support or come and join us and work with me one-to-one -one and we, you don't have to do it on your own. We'll hold your hand all the way through. Um, and like I say, you know, there's no judgment with us. It's about giving you the the information, informed decisions being made that are right for you. But having a sounding board as well to discuss things um, in a safe kind of environment, which I imagine is what you do as well, Mel, in your in your coaching, is just to kind of have have somewhere people can go and and, and talk about these things to so somebody else that understands. And I suppose while I'm not a solo parent I have had donor treatment so I understand a lot of, of, of that and everything that kind of goes with that and um, yeah you don't have to do it on your own I suppose is what I'm saying if you don't want to but if you do you can absolutely do it by yourself and I always say that to people you know I'm not sat here saying if you're going to have fertility treatment abroad you have to come and use someone like us because you can do it on your own it's just whether you want to isn't it and that's personal choice and you know there's no right or wrong but look into it see where it takes you and, and find out you know having some consultations does not wedge you to having to go abroad a lot of them are free anyway and so you haven't lost anything but your time 
And if someone did want to go on one of your courses or to get some um, guidance from you, where can they find you? So in a few places. So over on Instagram, I'm on at your IVF abroad. And if you look at the link in our bio, there's all sorts on there. So there's a, there's a couple of freebies, one about saving up. There's another one about if IVF abroad is right for you, that could be helpful to um, your ladies. Also, I have a free support group over on Facebook for people who are curious about planning or having fertility treatment abroad. Again, the link is there for that. And then there's information to get on the wait list for my next course and information on all our services on our website, which is yourivfabroad.co.uk. Perfect. Um, and one last question, language. What is the um, level of English? Um, is language a barrier at all? It can be in some places. It's a really, really important question. And, and sometimes the, the best person that speaks English is the one at the end of the computer. So you need to make sure that you're asking them, you know, do people speak good English? And sometimes if the doctor doesn't speak as good English, they'll have like a second in command that speaks amazing English so that there's no nothing lost in, um, in translation. Um, but there are lots of clinics that speak brilliant English as well so it's about sussing that out because that's really important sometimes in the emails that come across from clinics it can be a bit to and fro for you to understand what people mean um but generally speaking it is perfectly understandable yeah brilliant Excellent. Well, thank you so much. I think it'll be so helpful for anyone who is considering treatment abroad, which I think now people are starting to do again a lot more. So yeah, it'll be super helpful. Thank you so much for taking the time. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Hope it's been helpful. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Stalker and I podcast, I'd hugely appreciate if you rate, review and subscribe. I look forward to seeing you again next week.